Welcome to Inside the Match, where Alex and Simone talk residency applications. We are two residents here to help you navigate the match. For each podcast, we'll bring you residents from various specialties and backgrounds to give advice. So today we are super excited to have a podcast episode all about research, which is a very essential part of this entire application process and also a part of a healthcare professional's career. So thanks for joining us, Vamsi. Hey, thanks, Simone. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about where you're a resident, what year, and what specialty. I am a neurosurgery intern at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. Um, And I guess this podcast, for this podcast purposes, um, I did a lot of my medical school training at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. And so that's where I did a lot of my research. Well, you are in a very competitive specialty, and we know a lot of competitive specialties require research, but research is also an essential part of all specialties. So I want to learn a little bit about your backstory when you were applying to residency. How many posters, podiums, and manuscripts did you have when you started application season? Yeah, actually, um, so basically when we're talking about uh, applying to residency, what we realize is the ERAS process kind of lumps all of these numbers into one. So it lumps abstracts, presentations, posters, um, actual publications, any sort of special publications. It lumps all of those into one and we can parse through those later. So when I applied, I had a total of about 150 research items listed on ERAS. Um, and of those items, if I was to like break them down, I would say about 30 of them were journal publications. I had two books published, approximately 60 book chapters, six poems published, 20 oral presentations, and then 20 poster presentations, and then these 10 quote-unquote special publications, and we can touch on what those special publications might be later on. Oh my goodness, that is a lot more than (laughs) most people would have when they're applying to residency. Yes, of course, and I want to preface with that, like uh, I had a lot of research, and I think that was the crux of my application, but most specialties, even including neurosurgery, don't require someone to have this much research. I don't want to overwhelm anyone who's listening. So did you take a research year? I did not. I did not have a research year. I just tried to cram in as much as I could for four years. And I think something that is really important for a lot of people to recognize is one, a research year is not required. And then two, if someone were to take a research year, like my fiance Alex did applying to orthopedic surgery, it's really hard to get a lot done in a year because the publishing process in order to submit something to a journal and then revise it is really long. No, 100%. I completely agree with that. And the thing is, I do think there is a population in which research years will definitely help you. Um, I think for students who are interested in in research-heavy specialties or who decided late, let's say late in their third year, that they want to do a certain specialty and don't have a background of research in that specialty, I think those um, students will definitely benefit from one, but I don't think it's necessary by any means. So let's say that we're looking for a research project and we may not have anywhere close to the experience that you have. So we're a little bit nervous about starting off and we want to know where to go to even look for a project to get started. Yeah, so I'll just talk through the things I've done um, to get research. And so I think your best asset in medical school is to go to your own institution. So um, what that entails is attendings, residents, and then we can talk about even basic science projects, so PIs. So if you have a home department and your own own institution of whatever specialty you want to go into, you would find an attending mentor 
go talk to the chairman, the program director, whoever is uh, a research heavy advocate for, advocate for you and is interested in your, in your growth and talk to them about what you want to get involved in. And even if, let's say, even if your chairman isn't a huge researcher, um, he or she would be able to point you in the right direction um, as to where to find research. So the first step would be for me, would go to the attendings and be like, hey, this is who I am. I'm interested in the field. I'm interested in getting involved. Love to shadow. And also, I would also love to get involved in research. And so that's one avenue. But what you realize is attendings often pass down a lot of their research to their residents. And so residents actually have uh, uh, the say for most of the projects that happen in a, in a department. And so I would go to those residents. And if you become friends with those residents, talk to those residents in your home institution, what you'll find is that those residents will often have you get involved in the research because the residents don't have as much time as medical students do. And so they would love for a medical student to help with, let's say, gathering data or formulating a plan or putting together the discussion. And that's something that a medical student can do very easily and be able to um, integrate themselves into multiple projects. So the first avenue would be your own institution with attendings and residents. And then on top of that, you can also go to PIs. So let's say um, your institution has a basic science lab. And what you have to realize about these labs, and we alluded to it earlier, is, is that when you join a lab that's basic science, it often takes a long time for you to get a publication. And so this can take anywhere from a few months to a couple of years even. And what you'll find is that joining these labs, this research is more meaningful, more impactful. However, it take, takes much longer and it's not necessarily for everyone, but that's another avenue in your own institution to find research. Now, um, stepping away from your own institution, something that you'll realize is that you can also go to other institutions for research. Now, this gets a little messy sometimes when it comes to like um, HIPAA or when it comes to institutional data where you can't access uh, clinical data from other institutions. But oftentimes you can find attendings and residents who are doing meta-analyses or doing literature reviews at other institutions and go and reach out to them and just be like, hey, if there's any project that comes up, I would love for um, you to include me or love for uh, me to get involved in any way possible. And this is a really good way to not just get research, but also get a foothold in, an, in another program. So let's say that you go to medical school in, um, for my sake, Atlanta or in Georgia, right? And let's say that um, you want to go, let's say you have family in California and you really wanna go residency in California. So if you're like, hey, I'm really looking at this one program and I have family here, how can I get involved in this department? One good way is to just go reach out to the attendings and residents there. And honestly, you'll be surprised how many responses you'll get to just a cold email out of the blue. Hey, here's who I am, here's my CV. I would love to like talk to you on the phone. I'd love to get involved in research in your department. And I'm really interested in your program long-term. And that gets a ton of response because everyone likes to see that there's someone who's proactive enough to reach out and then proactive enough to say, hey, I want, and everyone likes to be wanted, I guess. And so that's another way you can go about it. So those are the first two ways. The third way is um, something that I discovered late in my medical school um, was creating your own project. And so what this entails is basically, let's say, you found a topic that you're really interested in, GBM. Um, so glioblastoma, and you're like, hey, I want to uh, pursue a project on glioblastoma, and I want to see how it correlates to um, geographical regions, for example. So I found this database online that tells me um, in, in what states glioblastoma arises in, and I want to create a manuscript that says, hey, the Southeast has more GBM than the West does, and put together a project. So let's say you and you find a couple friends, and you guys put together your own project before you even email it out to an attending. 
And let's say you put together this project, you basically write up um, a, an abstract for it, you put together um, pieces of the intro and discussion. What you can do is um, either as an abstract or you can put together the entire project if you'd like. You can either put together the abstract or put together the entire paper and actually send it out to an attending who is an expert in that field. So let's say that the GBM expert um, in the country is at Mayo Clinic. And so you put together this entire project and you, you email it to Dr. So-and-so, this is who I am, this is where I'm from. I'm very interested in GBM and I found that you're a leader in the field. Here's a manuscript that my colleagues and I have put together and we would love for you to be the senior author on the paper and give your thoughts to it. And I found a lot of success with this method. I don't think most medical students go about putting together their own projects and emailing them to attendings, but I found a lot of success in the attending not only being receptive to it, but also you getting the impression of being someone who's proactive, someone who's interested in research and someone who goes out of their way to put together all this effort to make a project happen, right? Because usually it's, it's from the top down. It's the attending or the resident who thinks of a project and the medical student just does the scut work for it. Well, those are awesome things. One, if I'm a medical student in Dallas, I am certainly coming running to you as a resident yeah. wondering what you're working on during residency. And two, I think what you truly said is so important is the, um, the idea of connection. And when you are able to make your own project, work on a project at another institution or even one of your own, you are developing your application and even finding someone that can vouch for you during application season. Oh, 100%. I completely agree. I think research is a great way to show dedication to a field, but it's an even better way to uh, create a research network and create a, a networking opportunity within the field you're in. And then, you know, a lot of us are really nervous right now as we think about the start of ERAS season, and we may not have a lot of projects, and it can take a long time to actually publish research. So do you have any like out of the box projects or things that we can work on that may not be bench research or clinical database research that may not take as long, but things that are publishable? Yeah, of course. So I alluded to it a little bit earlier, um, but I definitely had some of these out of box projects that I included on my application. And if you spend a, a good amount of time doing it and you are uh, genuinely are passionate about it and it's something that you want to showcase on your application, there is a place on your ERAS application to put projects that aren't necessarily traditional research. And so, for example, um, when I was in medical school, I also had a podcast. I had a website that we put together for neurosurgery, had a board review application. So like a mobile application on your phone that had flashcards for the neurosurgery board exams, put together an Anki deck that uh, for neurosurgery. Um, I, had a, I was part of a short film I had a musical album that I was the manager of. So there's a lot of things that you can do, not just in medicine, but just even outside that if you say, this is a, this showcases a core part of my personality and something that I really want to do. Um, you can, you can put together these other avenues in which you can list them as projects that they're not technically traditional research, but there's something that do uh, showcase who you are. And to showcase that you can complete a project, no matter what that is, is impressive. And the fact that you were also making an app for neurosurgery boards as a medical student, wow. <laughs> you're, you're flattering me. Um, no, I mean, honestly, it's just really thinking outside the box. If, if you have any idea, no matter what that is, and you're like, hey, I want to make this a reality, you can you can really take off with any project. And honestly, those out of box ideas often get more traction in your interviews than even the traditional research does because it's something that makes you stand out. 
So we all know that becoming a content master in your field is not just learning how to be a great clinician, but also to be able to understand concepts. And part of that is learning through research and reading research articles. So where do you recommend that someone goes to start reading a research article? Yeah, so this, is, this question is very specialty dependent, really. So what you'll find is that each specialty has its own two or three journals. I'm sure IM has 50, but in general, most specialties have um, their own uh, niche journals that people read from. Um, of course, there's JAMA and New England Journal and Science and Nature. And these, these papers are obviously seminal papers that everyone should um, at least dabble in here and there. But um, whenever you're interested in a specific field, you'll find those journals. And this is something that you can, accept, um, you can find through your mentors, through other medical students, et cetera. And um, once you find those journals, honestly, research I found is easier to read than, uh, than let's say like a, a book where I'm like trying to just memorize information because a research project at least has a thought process through it. And you can kind of, you can work through how the researcher went through their thought process when they're putting it together. So um, I would recommend just, every week, just picking up maybe two papers in whatever field you want and just reading those two papers. And, and really by the end of um, a year of that, like that's, that's so much research that you've read that you can um, hold on to. And that knowledge and research teaches you more than just the actual process of research itself, but so much tangential knowledge about the field you're going into. And you can also develop new ideas and you discuss the possibility of creating your own project and then emailing it to attendings. And this might be a place to go to figure out what research is already out there in the specialty that you're interested in and what you could develop even further into a project. Oh, 100%. And I guess we're here, something that is also really cool is that you'll feel, find that a lot of specialties steal ideas from other specialties. So let's say radiation oncology has an idea that only one paper has been published on. And you're like, wow, that technique is really cool. Um, and I would love to do that, that kind of technique for ophthalmology. Um, you could write a paper that is very similar to a radiation oncology paper um, in, in whatever field you're in. So what you'll find is even if you don't, even if you're reading research that's not necessarily your field, you can kind of steal ideas and, and turn those into projects of your own if you'd like. And we have alluded to the fact that research does take time. So can you give us a little brief overview of what the general process looks when you have an idea to the submission of an actual paper to a journal? Yeah, of course. So uh, either you or the attending or the resident thinks of, thinks of a project. So you've put together the thought process of a project and then you develop a team. So um, how I like to do it when I'm thinking up of projects and, I, I, and I'm formulating ideas is, I find um, a group of people who are pretty diverse. So um, let's say me and someone who's really good at writing and someone who's really good at um, data collection, someone who's really good at um, data analysis and statistics, and someone who's really good at making figures. And so we put together this little multimodal team of people who is able to tackle any project. And so you then collect the data. So um, you, you, you collect all the data you need for whatever project that might be, and then you synthesize that data. So let's say you're analyzing the trends in GBM again, we'll go back to that example, right? So then you take, take the data, you collect all of it, and then you synthesize it, you make it into, make it into graphs and tables, um, and you run the statistics on it, et cetera. And then you formulate a discussion. So what does this data tell you, right? Like, hey, does the, does the Northeast have less GBM than the West? So you put together that discussion. Why could that be? Like, are there, is there like high rates of cancer here? Are there more level one trauma centers here that people get referred to, et cetera, whatever that might be for the reason why someone, why whatever region might have more cancer, 
you formulate that discussion. Then you put together the entire manuscript and that's usually, um, I mean, intro, methods, results, discussion, conclusion. You have the whole thing put together. You have each member of your team proofread it and go through it and make sure that it's, it's good for submission. And I mean, at this point, it's whether you've thought of it or an attending has thought of it, you, the attending will be on board one way or the other. And so usually the attending is the last person to get the project, even if they're the one who thought of it. So they'll think of something, you, you put it together, you talk with the residents, you get it to the residents, they think through it, and then they finally you give it to an attending. And the attending will give the final remarks on the paper um, and finalize the manuscript. Then what, it, what you do is you submit it to a journal. So finding a journal is, is uh, something that uh, people often um, have trouble with, but finding a journal is something that usually the attending does. Um, and it's usually, again, there's not that many journals in the specialties in, in a lot of specialties, but for example, in neurosurgery, there's only three, three main journals in neurosurgery. And so um, we would formulate it by, Hey, which journal would this paper get most likely to be accepted to? Or, um, hey, let's shoot high. And if we don't make it to the, the top journal, then we can go to the next journal after that. We have nothing to lose. So you find a journal in that kind of way where you kind of talk to your attendings, talk to your residents, what journal would this fit in? And then you submit it to a journal. Um, and the submission process is an art in and of itself where you kind of have to find everyone's um, emails and you have to find everyone's fax numbers, which is another thing. So it's like kind of an archaic process, but submitting it to a journal is something that usually falls on the medical student. Uh, and then after submitting it to a journal, you kind of wait for a while. And the waiting process after submitting to a journal is really variable. It could be anywhere from a week to three months. It could, it could take a long time for these, um, for these journals to get back to you. And then the funny thing is these journals will get back to you and then want your revisions back in like a week. And you're like, wow, you just sat on my paper for three months. Um, so you submit to a journal, um, wait for their revisions. And so either you you'll either get a rejection or if, um, or like if you're lucky, you'll get a revision, which usually means that it'll get accepted after revisions. And so <clears throat> get the revisions, you um, piece together like the, what they say and how you want to incorporate that into your paper, discuss the points with your co-authors. Once more, you send it out to all your co-authors for the final approval. And then finally you resubmit it to the journal and then hopefully it gets published or they give you a publication email like you've been accepted, we will publish it in the next entry. And then at the end, um, it gets published like a, like a couple month, like a couple weeks to a month later. So from the beginning to the end, depending on all of these steps, it can take anywhere from a month if you're really, really fast, or it could take up to uh, honestly like a, like a year if um, given like the, how long it takes for you to think of a project and collect data and finalize a manuscript, submit it to a journal, wait to hear back, all this other stuff. So it can take up to a year. And I mean, this is just a, a, a regular paper, not even like a basic science paper, which requires so much more extensive review. And that's just one paper. And so the fact that you had 30 different journal publications when you applied means that you went through this process a lot of different times. Yeah. Um, yes. And I guess another thing to touch on is really just the um, just the amount of papers that you're going to have at any time. And if research, if you really want research to be a focal point in your application, you definitely have to be doing um, more than one project at once. Because if you only do one project at once, you could be waiting up to a year to get that one project out. And so there's going to be a lot of time in which you're not doing that much for this project, like when you're um, when other co-authors are working on it or when you're submitting it to the journal and you're waiting on them. 
And so really trying to interlock these multiple projects and time manage is a, is a big deal. And the other thing for a lot of people to recognize is that there's also open access journals, and those are ones that you do need funds for. So it is important for people to realize that there are a lot of journals that will go through things a little bit more quickly, but you may have to pay for that. And that's something that an attending would be able to offer if they do have that funding available. Yep, exactly. Um, and you have to be very careful, uh, especially when it comes to ERAS. A lot of um, attendings, especially, I mean, I can only speak to neurosurgery in particular, but a lot of attendings don't like papers that um, are open access only because they feel like you've paid your way into the journal and you're not actually getting it out of merit. And then a lot of attendings also don't like papers that aren't published on PubMed because they feel like if a paper, paper isn't on PubMed, it's not a legitimate paper. It's, it's something that's published to a third party journal that hasn't actually had the right review process. Great point. And then, you know, when you come to talk about a specific ERAS application for someone, do you think that quality versus quantity does make a difference when you are applying and you are new to research? Yeah, uh, this, is a, this is a very interesting question. So what everyone says um, behind the scenes is, hey, quality matters more than quantity. Um, and that's true. Uh, but I think I found that it's true only when it comes to major publications. If you find a publication in New England Journal or Nature or Science or like if you have one of those publications, you don't need to have a hundred different ones. That one publication is probably worth more than like 25 publications. So in those very rare examples, I would agree. But um, one thing that my, uh, one of my friends told me is that uh, most, uh, most uh, interviewers can't read, but they can count. And uh, what you'll find is that you will impress people if you have more, you never go wrong with having more. So I will often tell people that um, if they can spend three years in a lab and get one paper. And if that paper is not going to this massive journal, um, I would prefer that they have 15 different publications and each one have only taken like two or three months and not be as impactful because at the end of the day, um, those numbers do add up. And a lot of specialties also have screening tools for screening out people with less than a certain amount of publications. So not all of us are going to end up with an actual manuscript after medical school. And so I'm curious for those that are interested in doing some research, but may not have the ability to actually publish during a certain period of time, they could submit a poster or even a podium presentation. So how do you find these conferences in order to submit these posters or podiums? Yeah, this is a great point. So uh, again, going back to ERAS, we talked about how all of these things go into the same pool. So when I'm talking about like screening numbers and such, um, ERAS is kind of a game in some ways where you have to kind of um, know the system and knowing that abstracts and posters and presentations, at least upfront to programs look the same is a big deal. So getting that one basic science publication in science versus getting a poster presentation, honestly on ERAS, they're both one number. So yes, attendings will look at this during the interviews and be impressed more with one than the other, but upfront, um, it is important to have those numbers and you can get those numbers from, from, from uh, posters and presentations. So how to get them is something that, uh, or how to at least submit to them, is something that often attendings and residents and other students in your field will be um, privy to that information. So Speaking from my perspective in neurosurgery, there are two major conferences every year for neurosurgery nationally, AA and S and CNS. 
And then um, back when I was in Georgia, there was one state conference every year, year and it happened twice a year. So there's a fall and spring um, Georgia Neurosurgical Society. And so those were my major conferences that I presented at. And then I also uh, one year presented at the AMA conference, which um, most students can get a spot at if they actually submit a, a poster presentation to. And so, and this is in a small field and, and, and this neurosurgery is considered a small field. So I'm sure when you go, uh, when you expand to fields like IM or family medicine, pediatrics, there are multiple conferences in, in, that you can find. And it's honestly just talking to your mentors and finding out what conferences to submit to, and then um, taking your projects and actually submitting them to, to those conferences. And just one caveat I want to bring up is you can take uh, what one of my mentors told me was you can take any research project that you've, that you've written, that you've worked on or any research experience and present it up to three times. So um, what you'll find is that a lot of people present the research over and over. Um, I, I wouldn't say present, don't present the exact same thing three times, but um, while it's in progression, while you're still working on it, Hey, this is what uh, we have so far. And then let's say six months later, Hey, our project has progressed. And this is um, like, this is take the same presentation, but then add on, like, this is the additional data that we've collected in the last six months. So I do think that in that way, you can make a singular research project into multiple um, posters and then a, finally a publication. Those are excellent tips. And it's also important for people to realize that there may be a poster or presentation opportunity at their medical school or even regionally. So it's important to look at a lot of different opportunities like you described, not just those major conferences that are in those specialties. And also when you do present a poster, which may be virtual now, secondary to COVID, it's also an opportunity to network and connecting with other people is really key. Oh, 100%. And you bring up a great point when you're talking about like conferences in your medical school and in your region. Um, those are a big deal. And if you can just uh, present at, let's say, even if your own school has a research symposium that they put together every year, just presenting at that, that alone even um, counts as a research uh, presentation for your ERAS purposes. So now I'm really curious about your actual interviews. And I sort of wish that I was a fly on the wall to hear what people would say when they would look at your application and see so much research involved. So what sorts of questions did you get asked on the interview trail about your research? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the uh, biggest things I would say fall into three categories. So number one would be, hey, talk about a specific project. And so they pull out your research, they kind of point to any project on the paper and they say, hey, give me the major findings of this paper. So one important thing to know is that if you're going to have research on your paper, honestly, if you have anything, right, let's say, like, for example, for me, I, I wrote down that I took French for multiple years and um, I had an entire 15 minute interview in French for one of the schools <laughs> I applied to. So no matter what you write on your ERAS application, they're going to probably test you on it to some degree. And you should go in with that mentality. So um, any research you have in your paper, you should talk about, you should be able to talk about that research and articulate it well. So that's the first thing is just the actual content of the research. The second was um, question I got a lot was like time management. How did you manage these different projects? Um, how how uh, were you able to do this? And I think the biggest thing you find is, um, and just advice for the general audience is really that you just make time. If you make it a priority in your life, you just have to find a way to balance everything. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't take research and put it over, for example, your steps or your class grades, things that um, can get you knocked out of fields, but definitely make it a priority if that's something that you want on top of your application. And then the last question I got asked was about those special projects that we brought up. And uh, 
this is again, something that I think um, I wish a lot more medical students did was just really um, explore their creative side and just they're like, hey, I have this really cool idea or I really want to explore this thing, really, um, really go for it. Because a lot of these residency interviewers see the same applications over and over and seeing something really cool on your application is something that will bring a lot of people to talk about it. And then they'll talk with, within their faculty about you because you're the person who had whatever experience. Well, you have provided us so many tips to thrive throughout this application and interview process when applying and looking at research. So is there anything else that you would like to offer about getting involved in research? Yeah, so uh, what I would say is <laughs> the biggest thing is stay hungry, but know your limits, right? So like it's as a medical student, this is going to sound um, contradictory, but learn how to not say no. Um, and it's going to be really tough because you're going to feel like you're overwhelmed. You're going to feel like there's a lot on your plate. But if you become that go-to person in your institution, um, in whatever field, in whatever department, uh, that the residents are like, hey, this person gets stuff done, then they will go to you with projects. They'll come to you with projects. And that's what you want. You want, uh, if, that, if research is a pivotal point in your application, you want the department to know, know you as the academic research-minded um, medical student applicant. So that's the first thing. And then the final thing, and I don't think I was told this enough, and I really want to uh, like share this with the audience is really keep up with your resume, your CV, keep up with your CV throughout the entirety of medical school. Whenever you get a project, whenever you get a project, put it on your CV, whenever you get a poster presentation, whenever you do a special project, whenever you go to any conference, put it on your CV, because it's going to be very hard at the end of your four years, looking back and being like, Hey, what did I do again? What projects did I do? What, where did I go? Et cetera. So just uh, if you have any doubt, put on your CV and you can figure it out if it's supposed to be there or not later. Well, these are all tips that we should all recall, not just while we're in medical school, but also as residents, because research plays a very important role in those who are interested in academic medicine. And so one last thing, we all know that research is definitely a large component of your life. But I also want to know one thing about you. So can you share a fun fact about yourself? Because yeah, I, 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 we were just talking about interviews and stuff. So one thing that got brought up a lot in my interviews, um, throughout undergrad, I actually danced in a, in a Bollywood fusion dance team. And so uh, I, uh, I was actually a dancer for a little bit. And so uh, I guess really, if you have any sort of exciting thing that you've done in the past, I would, I would include it and talk about it. Because I mean, like we talked about fun facts here. I mean, every interviewer wants to know something fun about you. Well, from speaking French to dancing to having so much academic success, I look forward to seeing what you do in residency and beyond. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. I, I really enjoy being here. Well, that's all the time we have today with Vamsi. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Match. Special thanks to Kevin McCloyd for the music and be sure to follow or subscribe to our podcast. Catch our next podcast to learn more application tips and hear from another awesome resident or leader in medical education.